Our scripture reading this morning will be from Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave the Mount of Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Over the past several weeks, we have been walking with Gideon through his ups and downs. This Old Testament judge that we read about in Judges chapter 6 and 7 and 8. We've been walking with him, and he's had several ups and downs. Bouts of anxiety and bids for assurance from God, and all of that has led to this moment. It's time for an epic battle with the Midianites this tribe from the east that has come into the promised land and terrorized Israel, God's people, his covenant people. For seven years, they have oppressed Israel. They have destroyed their crops and their livestock. They have made life very difficult. And now it's time for the battle. No more words. It's time for action. It's time to see if Gideon is the mighty warrior that God called him early on. But this battle won't be a typical military crusade. This battle will be fought by faith, not by sword. And so why does this battle matter to us? Why does a fight between Israel and Midian over 3,000 years ago mean anything for us today? That's a good question. And I think at first glance, the easy, convenient answer is something like, Well, we all have battles we face every day. We battle creditors. (laughs) We have financial battles. I'm in a constant battle with my boss. Or we battle health issues or sickness. We know what it is to have daily battles. And the easy answer is, well, look, God will give you victory in those battles. Whatever you want to happen, whatever result, whatever outcome you want throughout those battles, don't worry, they will turn out just like you want them to. But when you compare that to life, reality tells a different story sometimes, doesn't it? The daily battles that we face don't always end up like we want them to. The result is, always, is not always victory in the sense of physical, tangible, material blessing and benefit. And yet there is a battle. There is a battle in which we are victorious. And it is the most important battle. In fact, it is a war, a spiritual war. You see, God defeated Satan at the cross of Christ. And God claimed victory when he rolled that stone away on Jesus' tomb and Jesus rose from the grave. And because of that, because that actually happened, because God ordained that to happen in our world, We have victory over sin and death. And we will live with the Lord forever. You see, that is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. That we have victory in 
Christ. Paul wrote about it throughout his letters that we call the New Testament. And in one of those letters, he says, one day, in the blink of an eye, we will be raised to live forever. Our bodies will be changed. They will become something that will never be destroyed, something that will never die again. And then Paul goes on to write these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God. Thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? If you're not thankful for anything else this week, the pumpkin pie, the turkey, that's good. But man, we should be thankful that we have victory in Jesus Christ. Our daily battles may not turn out like we want them to. We may have financial problems. We may deal with grief. We may struggle with our boss. We may have physical ailments and sicknesses that don't go like we want them to, but we have victory. When and where it matters most, we are victorious in Jesus Christ. May we never forget that. And yet I go back to the question, then why does this battle over 3,000 years ago between the Israelites and the Midianites mean anything for us? What's the lesson for us? What's the takeaway? What's the so what element here? Well, I think there is one. I think there's a very important one, one that we need to be reminded of day in and day out, one that we often forget. So let's take a look. As we've looked at Gideon's call narrative over the past several weeks in this series, we begin to see a clearer picture of this judge, this Old Testament judge. Gideon seems to be timid. He seems to be terrified. Already, already he has asked the Lord for three different visible signs. God, put something in my life, something I cannot miss, that shows me, that assures me that you're with me, that this is going to turn out okay. And God does that. And here, as we begin to get into chapter 7, we see that without even asking, Gideon doesn't even ask this time, and what does God do? He gives him another sign, another visible sign. He allows Gideon to overhear a conversation in the enemy camp, a conversation that assures Gideon that what's about to go down is from God, that Israel will be victorious. And finally, Gideon seems to be convinced. Isn't it interesting that it takes the enemy telling him that things are going to be okay for Gideon to believe it. God has been telling him all along that I'm with you, all along that I'm going to to bring you victory. He doesn't necessarily believe it. He's not necessarily convinced. But when his enemy says that, now he's convinced. (laughs) Maybe it says a lot about Gideon. But it's probably a good thing that Gideon has this constant reassurance because the odds are stacked against him. The odds in this battle do not look good. There are thousands and thousands of Midianites in the promised land. In fact, a couple of times in the text, it says there are so many that they can't be counted. You can't even count their camels, the text says. Well, someone has counted them, or at least they're fighting men, their army, 
and there seems to be about 135,000 fighting men. 135,000 in their army. Chapter 8, verse 10, you can kind of see how that works out. And so Gideon has called 32,000 Israelites together for this battle. Do the math. 32,000 against 135,000. Those odds don't seem real good, do they? But God says when he looks at those numbers, I don't like them. And I'm sure Gideon's thinking, I don't like them either. God, let's, let's recruit some more people. Let's boost this army a little bit. Let's give us a fighting chance. And God says, I have a plan to do something with the army, but we're not making it bigger. Back in our text, chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel will boast against me. They will say, my own strength has saved me. You can almost see Gideon saying, wait a second, God, you want to you take people away from our army? You want to make our military smaller? This is not a good strategy. And with those words by the Lord, we begin to get a picture of why this story is here. We begin to get a picture of what the point is for us, what the takeaway is for us. God says, if you defeat this army with your army of 32,000, you know what's going to happen? Your people and you will pat yourselves on the back. You will forget about me, God says. You will look only to yourselves and you will give yourselves credit for the victory. You will be blinded by pride. There's just something inside most of us, isn't there? There's just something inside most of us that wants to elevate us, that causes us to tend to look inward rather than upward, that causes us to want to raise our status in other people's eyes, to rely on ourselves, to be in control of things, to rely on our intellect or our expertise. We like that. It's hard to see God when our eyes are focused on us or when they're focused on all the distractions of life. Researchers at Harvard have done a, a study. They had participants come in and they asked them to talk about themselves and to talk about other people. And as they talked, they scanned their brains. And what they found was fascinating. When the people talked about themselves, a certain part of their brains lit up. It's the part associated with motivation and reward. The study says it's the same part of your brain that lights up when you talk about or eat comfort food. <laughs> or even when people do drugs, that's the part of the brain that lights up. And so when we talk about ourselves, it's almost like we're on drugs. It's almost like we're sitting in front of a big old plate of chicken fried steak. It makes us feel that way. There's just something inside of us that likes to look at us and likes to promote us. And God says, if you go into battle with that size army, I know what's going to happen. They are going to look at themselves. They are going to credit themselves. They are going to pat themselves on the back. So God says, we need to do something about this. We need to make it painfully obvious. 
God says that I am in control, that I am the one that gives victory to you. And so he does a little number on the numbers. And I wanted to see if we can maybe illustrate this visually so you'll remember it. And not just so you remember the story, as important as that is, but so you will remember the takeaway, the important message for us today. And so, guys, I talked to Jack. You guys, Tyson, come out here, five of you, right there. And I'm going to need a few more of you in just a minute, okay? So Char, get ready. Hunter, Riley, you guys get ready. I'm going to need a few more in just a minute. All right, these are our fighting men. Quite an army, huh? Jack, you stand right there, right on those steps. You three guys over here. Where's my other guy? Oh, yeah, come on down. You're the next contestant. All right, you guys stand over here. You're recruited in this army. All right, so this is Israel. Do I need to? No. This is the Midian army, the Midianites. And we look in the text and we have 32,000 Israelites. And they're going up against 135,000 Midianites. And so the ratio is about one to four. One to four. Do you think you could take these four guys? <laughs> no. <laughs> right answer. Good answer. But God says, I don't like those numbers. We need to do something about this. And so in verse 3, he says, there are too many men in your army. So announce to them, if you tremble with fear, if you're afraid, then guess what? You can go home. No worries. You just go home. And the text says that how many went home? 22,000. Wow. Can you imagine what the other guys who stayed were saying to those guys who left? Guys, come on, right? But it leaves only 10,000. What's amazing to me is that Gideon stayed. That's really the amazing thing to me. I mean, think about it. What do you know about Gideon? He was timid. He was terrified. He was afraid. He constant, needed constant reassurance. And it's almost like he's saying, hey, God, hey, our employees, can we, are we eligible for this discount? Because if I can go home, I'd love to. But Gideon stays, which to me is interesting. I think it's almost out of character, but maybe, maybe we're seeing something here that we'll get to later. Maybe we're seeing something. And so we are left with how many now? 10,000. 10,000 against 135,000. So it's no longer one to four, it's more like one to 13. One to 13 or 14. So I need nine more guys to come on down. Nine more guys. I see three, four. The longer you wait, the longer the sermon is. I see eight. I need one more. All right, good deal. So you guys join the Midianites. Sharpen your swords. Get ready for battle. Very good. Quite a crew. Now what do you think? Huh? I'm good. You don't want to take them on? No. <laughs> you don't like these odds? No. No, he doesn't like these odds. I don't blame him. I don't blame him, but you know what? God says, I'm not done cutting. I'm not done cutting. So in verse 4, he says, now it's time for operation elimination by hydration, <laughs> which is much different than hydration elimination, but we won't go there. So he says to them, he says to Gideon, take them down to the springs. 
Take them down and let them drink water. And watch how they drink. Now, there's a little bit of confusion in the translation, and your translation may be a little bit different. The NIV is, is on the screen, although we don't really have the rest of this passage. But it's a little bit confusing about the difference in how they drink. But basically, it seems that part of the group sort of knelt down and used their hand almost like a dog uses his tongue. You know how a dog drinks water with its tongue and it laps it up. And so maybe some guys drank like that, while the others crouched down next to the water and maybe made a, a bowl with their hands and sipped that or cupped that into their hands. But it was distinctly different the way the two groups drank. It's interesting that some scholars have looked at this and they said, well, there's some military strategy there. There's symbolism there for the guys who are more alert, the more ready for battle. And I think, well, if you know the rest of the story, that really doesn't make sense because God is not necessarily looking for the the biggest, baddest dudes to fight in his army, is he? He's looking for the frailest, feeblest, <laughs> most fragile people he can find. Because it's not about them, right? Remember what God said? If you go into army with all those people, you're going to take credit. So God doesn't necessarily need, need the, the biggest, baddest dudes to fight in his army. And so he he watches how all these soldiers, how all these fighting men drink water. And only 300 drink like that dog lapping that water up with their hand. He says, you send everyone else home. Send everyone else home. And so we're going to send all of you home, except one of you. You join, you just got drafted in the Israelite army. The rest of you guys get to go home. Actually, we're sending them home. It's confusing, but I'm sending you home to look at the numbers. You'll see in just a minute. So thank you, guys. You can go sit down. I had to recruit one more for the Israelite army to make the numbers work because now it's you two against everybody in here. You see, the ratio started 1 to 4, and then it went 1 to 13 or 14, and now it's something like 1 to over 400. And so the numbers don't work out exactly, but you get the idea. Two to, you know, seven or eight hundred who are here today. So it's you two against everybody here. You think you guys could take them? (laughs) You do have the uniform on, though. That's good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you could take me. been there done that already (laughs) but here's the thing as bad as these odds are they get even worse if you can believe it because guess what you guys get to go into battle with here is what you get to fight with you get a jar you get a torch in this case a very heavily scented candle And you get a trumpet. I couldn't find a trumpet. And, well, you know, there's probably other reasons too, but whatever you do, don't don't play that. (laughs) So now this is what you have to fight in the battle. And guess what everyone else in here has? They have swords. They have shields. Maybe they have slings, and they are ready to go to battle. Now, how do you like your odds? Not good. (laughs) Not good. 
here's the thing. It is humanly impossible for an army of 300 to defeat an army of 100 and should be 135,000 or 132,000. It's virtually impossible. The truth is, this is not going to end up well for these guys. It's, it's just not going to happen. Apart from God, it cannot happen. So let's see what happens. Let's see what the strategy is. Let's see what the outcome is. Thank you, guys. You can go sit down. Yeah, you can give them a hand. That's fine. So let's see what happens. Let's go to the text and let's see this extraordinary battle that unfolds. Chapter 7, verse 16. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, Gideon told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out, as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused, that's an important phrase there, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The Midianites who survived friendly fire took off running, and Gideon enlists other tribes in Israel to go and to block them and to pursue them. And basically, the bottom line complete annihilation absolute victory for Israel God gave the Midianites over to Gideon and Israel just as he said he would back in chapter 6 verse 16 God says to him I will give them to you you will defeat them I will be with you that's what he says if you have your Bible open look at it verse 16 of chapter 6 I will be with you and you will strike them down every one of them and that's exactly what happens. And all glory and all praise and all credit should go to whom? To God. But did you notice something in the battle? Did you notice something that might be a little bit telling? What was the battle cry? What was the battle cry of Israel? For the Lord and for Gideon. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Why isn't it just for the Lord? Is something happening here? After all the reassurance, after all the signs, after all the assurance from God that I will be with you, this is about what I'm doing for you, why does Gideon include himself? Why does he seemingly try to take some of the credit? The same reason we do. Stubborn pride, ego, lack of faith, short-sightedness, the desire to be recognized, all those same reasons, we know. If we learn anything 
from this battle scene, this extraordinary battle, if we learn anything from Gideon's story, it's this. It is not about me. It is always about God. Always about God. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what battle you're facing, no matter what circumstances, what odds are stacked against you, no matter what decisions you have to make, what relationships you are in or you want to be in, or what victories you have and success you experience, no matter what. We are called to look to him, to look beyond self and see God, to look to him, to lean on him, to praise him. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about what we are doing or want to do or can do. It's about who God is and what he is doing. He is in all things. He is over all things, and he works through all things. And so what is going on in your life right now? Think about it. What is going on in your life? More specifically, what is God doing in your life? Open your eyes and see what God is doing. Look for him. Go to his word and find out who he is. You cannot see God if you don't look for him. You can't see God if you're looking at yourself. You can't see God if you're distracted by all the things of the world, the pleasure, possessions, or your pride. Sometimes even our fears and our struggles distract us. You know, maybe Gideon's battle cry was the beginning of a turn. A beginning of a turn, not just in what we think maybe is self-confidence. Remember, he didn't go home. Everyone who's afraid, go home. Gideon stayed. Maybe Gideon's more confident. And now all of a sudden the battle cry is for the Lord and for Gideon. But maybe as he's turning more toward himself and self-confidence, it also means he's what? He's turning away from God. You know what happens after the battle? After the battle, Gideon says all the right things to Israel. But you know what he does? He takes some of the gold plunder from the battle. And with it, he creates an image, an ephod. There's probably two different kinds in the Old Testament. One is sort of something you wear. The other is an image. This is probably an image. And guess what this image becomes? It becomes an idol. It becomes an idol. Full circle. Remember how all this started? Because they were bowing down and worshiping the idols of the land. And now here we are again. The text says that that image became a snare, a trap for Gideon and his family. Maybe we see this turn towards self-confidence, but also maybe it means a turn away from God. The whole Gideon narrative, all of it, including this extraordinary dwindling down of his army and the battle itself, is about one thing calling people to God. That's it. Calling people to God. They had wandered away. Their allegiance was divided. And God is calling them back to himself. I think that's what God wants today. That's the message. It's not about me. It's always about him. God is calling us back to him. God said, unless I make these odds so absurdly difficult 
and large and overwhelming, you'll miss me. He says, you'll miss me because you aren't looking for me. And so let me just ask you, are you missing God? Are you missing him? Maybe you're distracted. Maybe it's just pride or, or, or fear or struggle, wrong priorities. Are you missing God, what he is doing in your life, who he is? When the odds are stacked against us, we don't step out in faith because we know the path will be easy. We step out in faith because we know the one who will walk with us. When we go into battle, we don't step into battle knowing what the outcome will be. But we know when we go into battle, the daily battles of life, we know who's on our side. We know the one who wins wars with torches and trumpets is on our side. The one who slays giants and divides seas is on our side. The one who makes the lame walk and brings sight to the blind, that's the one who is on our side. The one who rolled that stone away. So Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, could walk out of that tomb and bring life to us. He's the one that is on our side. And that gives us great hope. That gives us great confidence because our trust and our faith is in him. So don't miss him. Don't get to the end of your life and look back and say, I missed God. Something happened along the way. Maybe I was looking at myself. Maybe I was distracted by other things, busyness and demands. And Don't miss God. What's he doing right now in your life? What's he doing in the world? Acknowledge who he is, what he's doing, and join him in doing that. And give him praise along the way. This morning, if we can encourage you to do that, if we can pray for you, if you need to confess sin, reach out for help and support, we're happy to be here for you. That's what church family is about. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ. You know that it's all real, that it's true. And you're ready to make Jesus Lord of your life by confessing he is Lord and being baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ. We'd be so happy to help you and celebrate with you today. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a room right behind me. In just a minute when we stand, you can exit the auditorium and make your way there. They'd be happy to encourage you and pray for you. Or you can come down to the front and we as a church family will receive you. If there's something we can do for you today, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.